And this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. <coughs> not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk, <laughs> and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And with these introductory words, the psalmist utters what is once a prayer and an expression of praise to God. The twofold statement, not to us, suggests his profound sense of unworthiness. Unworthiness in the light of what he goes on to speak of as the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. God's steadfast love is his loving kindness as particularly expressed in his unfailing loyalty to his covenant with his people. The popular word chesed speaks of God's loving kindness. It speaks of his commitment to act faithfully toward his people, to fulfill, as it were, his covenant obligations toward them. His faithfulness speaks of the consistency by which he acts in truth and righteousness. In other words, he acts consistently with his character. He does not disappoint. He can be relied on. He is trustworthy is the idea behind his faithfulness. And the psalmist here gives all glory to God, rejecting any idea of personal deservedness. 
any notion that he deserves anything from the hand of God. He sees all that he is, all that he has as expressions of the sheer kindness and faithfulness of God toward him. What is the context of this psalm? And if we do a close reading of this psalm, while we cannot say for sure, it appears that it was written, it was written against the backdrop of the Babylonian captivity. And this because of the strong polemic against idolatry, the very sin for which Judah, and in fact Israel, centuries before, had gone into captivity. Remember, in 721, the northern kingdom went into captivity, and then 586 BC, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, went into captivity, and basically the nation went into idolatry as part of God's chastisement for their idolatry. In fact, the taunting, sarcastic characterizations of the gods of the heathen in verses 4 through 8 echo Isaiah 44, verse, verses 19 and 20. And Isaiah's ministry, we know, occurred during the period of Judah's captivity. The language of taunt, the language of ridicule, we find here in this chapter as the, the psalmist launches this uh, this ridicule against the gods of the heathen. Uh, why should the nation say, where is their God, is consistent with the antagonism that Judah experienced during the Babylonian captivity as recorded in Psalm 137, 1 to 3. Where is your God is a question that recurs time and again throughout the scriptures, and it is the challenge that's often posed by the ungodly to the righteous, because God at times does not appear to act on time for his people, because at times God appears distant, uninvolved in the lives of his people, the ungodly looking on sees that as a token of God's distance from them, the fact that God does not care about them, or even that God is non-existent. Where is your God is also a question that the people of God uh, sometimes are tempted to ask in times of discouragement. In times of grievous failure and defeat, and I'm suggesting, in fact, doing a close reading of this psalm, I see in this psalm what I would describe as the mature, after-the-fact reflection on Judah's experience of the exile. And why do I say that? Because during the exile, of course, the state of Judah and even of Israel was one of despondency during that period of divine chastisement. They were actually saying, where is God in our situation? And so I'd like to begin by speaking in in general terms to say this, that in relation to his people, God may at times seem silent and distant. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And first of all, God may appear silent and indifferent to his people in times of severe persecution. With the privilege of living in the West, you and I can hardly understand, comprehend the level of oppression, the brutal, violent atrocities that are sometimes perpetrated against Christians in various parts of the world. Accustomed as we are to the various luxuries and freedoms here in the United States, 
many naively assume that so long as they are faithfully serving God, so long as they are faithfully loving God, he will shield them from such horrific experiences. In fact, some of you will hear say this, God will never let something like that happen to us. No, that is not my God. My God is just not like that. In biblical times, the people of God were at times persecuted. They were oppressed beyond measure such that they felt that God was distant and totally detached from them. We read, for example, in Psalm 10, verses 1 through 11. Listen, for example, the psalmist there. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked do not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And that's precisely how many tyrants, many oppressors see Christians, they see them mainly as pawns. They see them merely as sheep to be slaughtered. Why? Because after all, God, God does not exist. And God is not coming to strike them. God is not coming in, in fiery judgment against them. And so they oppress the people of God beyond measure, heartlessly, mercilessly. In Psalm 74, the psalmist portrays the people of God inquiring as to why God has cast them off and why he is so angry against them. Verse 1. In verses 3 to 8, he records them as lamenting the enemy's desecration and utter destruction of the Lord's sanctuary. They're seen as being without prophets. That is, not having the blessing of hearing from the word of God. In verses 9, 10, 18, 22, and 23, they're seen as being under the reproach and contempt of their oppressors, even as they revile the name of the Lord. And for these things, we notice, the people of God there, they are in deep anguish, they are in deep distress, as they cry to the Lord for his response, for his delivering intervention. They're being persecuted, and God seems distant, and they are crying out to God, Oh God, why have you cast us off? Will you cast us off forever? So first of all, God may appear silent and indifferent to his people in times of severe persecution. But here's the truth. It is not as it appears because God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Even when we are being offered, as Paul says, as sheep for the slaughter, nothing, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God. No, not even persecution, not even sword, famine, or any kind of atrocities that might be leveled against us. 
Secondly, God may appear silent and indifferent to his people in times of spiritual pruning. Not just in times of severe persecution, but in times of spiritual pruning. That is, when they are suffering, not as a chastisement for their sins, but as part of the trial of their faith and the refinement of their character. Case in point, Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is another of those psalms in which the people of God are again depicted as being in sore distress. The psalmist recounts Israel's past experience of the favor of God, the blessing of God, of the wonder-working power of God on their behalf. Without the use of human swords, verses 1 to 3, God drove out nations before them. God planted them in the land of these nations. And though God is acknowledged as king, affirmed as a source of their deliverance and prided in for who he is, verses 4 through 8, life is not, not now pleasant for Israel. In verse 9, the psalmist complains to God that he has rejected and disgraced his people, not aiding them in battle, allowing them to suffer horrible defeat. He says concerning God that God has no caring. God seems to show no caring regard for them in that he subjects them to the taunts and ridicules of surrounding nations. Now wait there for a minute. There must be sin in their lives. There must be sin in their lives. Well, listen to the psalmist. The psalmist makes it clear in verses 17 through 22 that all these things came upon the nation despite the fact that there was no known sin in the life of these people. Not all, he says there, all of this did not occur because of the nation's sins. Here's what he says, verses 17 through 22. All this has come upon us. All these calamities. Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet, verse 19, you have broken us in the place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the hearts, yet for your sake, here it comes, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God may seem distant, beloved, in times of spiritual pruning, in times not necessarily when we are being chastised for our sins, but when we are being pruned, when we are being tested, our faith is being tested, our character is being refined. And the point is this, that when you and I judge ourselves, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to see whether or not there is sin in our lives, unconfessed sins, and when to the best of our knowledge, when to the best use of our consciences under the help of the Holy Spirit, we can find no reason, no occasion of sin that would possibly lead to our being afflicted, chastised, then we must take it that what God is doing is this, God is testing us. He's taking us through the fires of testing. Just as he did in the case of Job. 
And suggested by Psalm 44 is that such occasions of trials and testings can be times when God seems aloof and distant. And what should we do in such times? Rather than being cast down, rather than being discouraged, rather than casting away our faith or confidence in God, rather than falling into despair, we should call out to the Lord in prayer, pouring out our hearts to him with openness and honesty before him. That's what we need to do. Job will go before God in the midst of his calamity, in the midst of his distress, and he says, that which I do not understand, teach me. And he will say something to the effect that if he has committed iniquity, well, let God search him and let God take care of it. In such times, rather than falling into despair, what we should do, we should pray, we should trust in the Lord, we should trust him to deliver us, to fortify us in our trials so that we might have also wisdom to discern what God is trying to accomplish in our trials, in our sufferings. As well, we should like the psalmist in this sense of loss of the Lord's presence, recall how God was gracious in the past, Psalm 77, 9 through 12. Here's the psalmist again in a situation where he senses that God is distant, God is uncaring. He says this, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, here's a solution, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. God may seem distant, beloved, in times of severe persecution, and he may seem distant in times of spiritual pruning. But thirdly, God may appear silent and indifferent to his people in times of spiritual privation. He may appear distant, he may appear aloof in times of spiritual privation. What are we talking about? In times of spiritual dryness. In those times when we sense a lack of joy, in those times when we sense a lack of what we might call the felt presence of God. Psalm 42, we know this a psalmist likens his overweening thirst for God to that of a deer panting for flowing streams, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul after God. This man is yearning for God. And so desperate is he for God's presence that he's moved, notice in verse 3, he's moved to incessant tears, even as the people taunt him daily concerning this question, where is your God? And you skip down to verse 5, you notice the impact this has on him, the effect this has on him. This has him tremendously cast down. This has him in a state of deep turmoil of soul. In fact, he says, why, soul, why are you disquieted within me? And indeed, many a believer has been through those dark seasons when God seems distant and aloof. It's not necessarily because of backsliding. It's not necessarily because of sin. 
But God, here again is another situation. God might be taking them through discipline, through training, training them to rely on him in faith, even when there's no sense of the felt presence of God. The psalmist there is crying out. He says, my soul longs for God. And it's as though he cannot uh, come to, to, to sense and enjoy the presence of God such that he's cast down and his enemies are taunting, where is your God? And then fourthly, God may appear silent and indifferent to his people, obviously in times of chastisement for sin. When God is taking his child or his children to the woodshed, so to speak, to discipline them, to train them, it can be painful. And those are times when God's presence seems distant. God may seem some would say cruel. God, in times of punishment, in times of chastisement for sin, in the lives of his people, can be very severe. Lamentation chapter 2, the prophet Jeremiah laments the severity of God's chastising hand on the people of Judah for their sins. In verse 1 of Lamentations 2, he states that in his anger, the Lord has not remembered him. That's how he felt. Verse 3, that he has withdrawn from his people his right hand in the face of the enemy. In other words, just at that time when they're in need of God's presence, where their enemy is coming up against them, God has simply what? Turned his back on them. Verses 4 and 5, how that the Lord relates to them as an enemy. The Lord was as an enemy. Verse 7, how that the Lord has scorned his altar, has disowned his sanctuary. In other words, God was no longer in the church, if we might put it in those terms. Verse 9, that their prophets find no vision from the Lord. In other words, God simply doesn't talk to them, doesn't communicate with them. And why is that? Because he's chastising them for their sins. And then we have Israel in exile, Isaiah 49 verses 13 and 14, the case of Israel in exile, despite the fact that God has forgiven them, despite the fact that God has assured them this is a time to rejoice, God is comforting them, they said, no, 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 you have forgotten us. You have abandoned us. We read there in Isaiah 49, 13 and 14, God, as it were, saying, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountain, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. You see, they were reeling, they were chafing under the exile. They were, God, even though God had forgiven them because, remember now, 70 years of captivity. And they wanted to go home. What is God doing? God has forgotten us. God has said, listen, you have received double for your sins. You, have been, you, you are forgiven. It's time to rejoice. I said, no, 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 Lord, you have abandoned us. Yes, times of divine chastisement for sins can cause a believer to lose a sense of the presence of God. 
can cause the believer to conclude that the Lord has cast him or her away. This explains why, you remember David after that sin with Bathsheba, even as he confesses sin in, in Psalm 51, 11, remember his prayer, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now this Psalm 115 seems to be answering this question and perhaps what we could do is actually use this as a caption, as a heading for this message, which, by the way, will come to an end shortly. And the question is, what do we do when God seems distant? When God seems aloof, when God seems silent, when God seems not to be caring, when all is dark around us, when our circumstances, our world is falling apart, where is God? Where is or the enemy might haunt? Where is your God? What's our recourse? What do we do in such times? And I'll just mention to you just a few things, and we'll come back to it another time. What should we do? Number one, in those times, we should recognize that God is transcendent and sovereign. We should recognize in those times when God seems distant that God is transcendent and sovereign. Verse 3, notice, before we go to verse 3, we want to say this, that as the creator of the world, God, we know, is present and active in this world. And the word that theologians typically use for this is the immanence of God. God is very much present and he's very much active in the world. But though he's present and active in the world, he's above and beyond the world. And here we speak of God's transcendence. This is what we find in the A part of verse 3. Notice what the psalmist says in response to the heathen, crying out to them, taunting them, where is your God? The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. And that our God is in the heavens, beloved, means, among other things, that we can never, we can never fully understand, we can never fully fathom, we can never fully comprehend his ways when our ways seem dark, when everything seems to be falling apart. We can never fully fathom his dealings with us. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's the point, because God is transcendent, because God is so majestic, God is so far removed from the earth, even though he's involved in the earth. Yet, here's the point, we cannot Judge him by feeble sense, as the songwriter says. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Why? Because his ways and dealings far transcend what our human minds can comprehend. It means we cannot judge or assess him by our feeble, finite senses, which means, therefore, that we can never at any point conclude that he is distant from us. Because here's the point. He's very much still with us. Our finite minds cannot comprehend how we can be going through bitterness, we can be going through darkness, and yet God is very much there with us in the pain, in the sufferings, in the adversities. In times when God seems distant, we should recognize that God, yes, he's immanent, but he's also transcendent. And if he's transcendent, we can't fully understand his ways. As the wise man Solomon said, he's in heaven and we are on earth. Two different realms. 
Then not only should we recognize that God is transcendent, secondly, we should recognize that God is sovereign. Look at the B part of verse 3. Not only is he seated in the heaven, but notice, he does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. The sovereignty of God, beloved, means this, that God is utterly free without any constraint outside of himself, without any external compulsion to do anything. It means this, that he orders all things to serve his will and pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Indeed, amidst the chaos, the confusion of our world, nothing is more assuring, nothing is more comforting, nothing is more consoling to the believer than the truth that our God is in the heavens, that our God is sovereign, that our God does as he pleases. There is nothing that should stir our hearts with joy more than the assurance of this blessed truth of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means ultimately that God Because he is free to act, he's under no compulsion, he's under no hindrance whatsoever. Here's the point. How does that relate to you and me as believers in our sufferings? We're reminded of Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for good to those who love him. He orchestrates, he orders all things for our good, which means this, that he's using even the darkness, he's using even the bitterness, he's using even the pain to accomplish his ultimate good purpose for us and for his glory. And that is comforting. It means then that when we're going through these periods of darkness, when we're going through these periods of crisis, our situation becomes what? Meaningful. Because we understand that God is in control. Listen, if we don't understand that, we're going to crack up and we're going to fall apart. So here are the people in despondency, in discouragement, and they're being taunted, where is your God? They might even believe that God is absent. And the way to do that, the psalmist here is giving us a reflection of the exile. And the psalmist is saying here that the way we deal with the felt absence of God, the way we deal with times of darkness when God seems silent and distant, is to understand the truth that he's sovereign and as such he's working out his purposes. The sovereignty of God assures us that he is in command of all things. It means that he knows and declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46 verse 10. It means that he can cause even the evil intentions and actions of men. He can use those things for his good purposes. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Acts chapter 4 27 through 28. We see that in how the world dealt with the Lord Jesus, or the Lord God used the death and suffering of the Lord Jesus to accomplish his purpose of redemption. It means, as one Bible teacher puts it, quote, he says this, he has purposed or decreed all things that ever have come to pass and all things that ever shall come to pass without exception in this sense, everything that is, has been, or shall be is the will of God. You know, it's very interesting, and with this I close. It's fascinating to hear the Muslims speak sometimes when tragedy occurs. What they typically say, Allah wills it. And they rest confidently in that. Now here's the problem. Islam 
does not teach, as we do, the immanence of God, which is to say that God is with us, he comes near us, he comes alongside us, and he's very much involved in our lives intimately, they emphasize the transcendence of God, and they therefore emphasize the sovereignty of God. Here's the point. They rest completely confident in the will of God. That's why they can, in the name of Allah, do things that we say, how in the world could they do that with their lives? Now, here's the truth, beloved. We need, we, by the grace of God, thank the Lord, according to the revelation of God's word, we have a God who is very much near us, involved with our lives, there to help us. He's tender towards us. He's compassionate towards us. But guess what? Here's the point. He acts in ways sometimes we do not understand. Why? Because even though he's imminent, he transcends us. He's transcendent. And the way we are going to find comfort is not just in the idea that God is with us here, but the fact that God, being the God he is, sovereign God he is, is able and capable to use tragedies, disasters, bitterness, darkness, pain, suffering, for our good and for his ultimate glory. I leave us with this thought this afternoon, these thoughts, that God would indeed impress them on us. When time, in times when we feel that he's distant, he's not. May we learn to trust him, learn to rest in his sovereignty, in his power, understanding that he is the majestic, transcendent God of heaven, whom we can never fully fathom, comprehend, understand. Amen.